Good morning. Let's pray to the Lord real quickly. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, as we open your word and look at it this morning, that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. We pray that uh, all the glory will belong to you and everything that's said, that you will ensure that truth is spoken uh, directly into our hearts as you teach us. You help us to understand these things. And Lord, I, I thank you for this, uh, the, the blessings, the beauty of this Christmas season. I thank you for the beauty of this family, as uh, Humphrey uh, spoke about earlier, and, then, and the family you've put together. You've brought us from so many different places uh, for different lengths of time, but you've put us here together at this, this place, this church, and in your larger family in Beijing, and we thank you for that. We pray that uh, you will be our source of strength hope, inspiration, wisdom, and encouragement as we continue to serve in this family and also as we go off to other places. And I pray this in your name, our precious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to begin this morning by uh, just reading a, a scripture passage in your series of Christmas speakers are not speaking necessarily directly on Christmas messages. So I hope you'll continue to bear with us on that. And hopefully, actually, this is about perfect for my eyesight at this age, so I'll leave it right there. I'm going with technology this morning because I'm doing a lot of, but I'm still old school enough. I brought my Bible with me anyway because I felt guilty if I didn't. But uh, I'll be reading today from the... Um, uh, English Standard Version, and I don't have all the passages up here. Um, some will will have up there for you to read. Others, when I reference a passage, the reference will just be up there if you're interested and want to want that uh, for later, just so it doesn't pass by too quickly. But uh, just reading this passage from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, "Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell." The floods came, and the winds beat and blew on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds beat and blew against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. An introduction is in order. I don't get to meet a lot of you because I'm usually in the back uh, with ST and Pearl counting the money during the uh, greeting times. My name is uh, Mark Schleif. My wife Angie and I have been here for about four and a half years in Beijing. Um, we were sent here by organization, organization called Bible Study Fellowship International, affectionately known as BSF, headquartered in San Antonio, Texas, but it has uh, over a thousand classes around the world, and we were sent here to help support class that was already uh, functioning here and try to start a men's class. And uh, along the way, uh, we also have co-workers who have been starting classes um, sort of in a front doorway with the Chinese government uh, for Chinese nationals. And those have naturally gone through their hiccups, as everything does here. We... Um, we also have um, our background before we were here in, in Beijing. Oh, and along the way, kind of got involved in uh, Christian schooling as well. So I have a second job as a teacher. Uh, first was at uh, International Academy of Beijing, which is uh, not in operation this year. And uh, now serving at the Hope International School, which has started up under the leadership of uh, Ben Norton, our headmaster. But uh, mostly under the leadership of God. 
and, and Ben is his servant. Before that, we were in Arkansas uh, for about 24 years. Four of those were my university time, and then 20 years uh, that we lived there with our children. All of our children are here with us today, and all have spent some time living in Beijing. Three of them, or two of them are here with us. One is already out of college and, and here on her own, and our son's back from university. So before that, we were in Arkansas, and long before that, I grew up as a child of missionaries uh, to the country that uh, now known as Zimbabwe. Um, I know we have a number of members in our congregation that are from our northern neighbor, Zambia, and um, growing up in Zimbabwe, there was a place we like to go on vacation called Lake Kariba. Lake Kariba um, is formed by Kariba Dam, which was built from 1955 to, to 1960 to provide power to mainly to the mining that was taking place in what was then northern and southern Rhodesia, and that uh, was, a, at the time, the largest man-made lake uh, that was constructed. Uh, the wall itself, I think, is, uh, stands like uh, 128 meters above the riverbed and is over 600, feet across, uh, 600 meters across. And um, the lake comprises about 5,500 square kilometers. Uh, the length of it is 280 kilometers back down the Zambezi Valley. A huge lake. In fact... Forming it caused quite an ecological impact. Um, There were a lot of animals and people that had to be moved out of the way when that lake was formed. But during the process, I remember as a child in Rhodesia watching films of the building of that dam and all the troubles that came because as they were starting to lay the foundations, and the hardest thing about damming up a river as strong as the Zambezi River, the same river on which the Victoria Falls are located, is that... It's fine to hold the water back, but how do you begin? So they began trying to lay the foundations of that wall. And they had record flooding in the years of 57 and 58. 57 was what they would have considered a 50-year flood. You know, once every 50 years, followed by what they would have considered a 100-year flood, in which the, the levels were three meters higher the next year. And I remember watching the films where they showed the temporary retaining walls just being completely swept away by the floodwaters. They continued to pour concrete in there, and, and, they, and, and they just had to evacuate the river valley for a while until the floodwaters subsided, and they went back in. And they continued this process, building up. Things were washed away until finally in 59, at the beginning of the rainy season, they had enough water to hold back the dam, hold back, uh, to, to hold back the river, and allow the dam to be completed. It took 10,000 men four years to build it. Over 80 people died in the construction of that dam. And um, to me that I was thinking back on those films and those pictures in a moment of great frustration because in the time since we've come to Beijing, working um, with a men's Bible study class, which was started only by the power of God. I remember when we were trying to get it together and Stephen Yeo and others were a part of that, that early process know that it was so hard to get together enough men to get the thing started. Not because there weren't men here, but they weren't here all the time. They're so busy. Men are going so many different places. And we were adding up the statistics. And that class did get started in the spring of 2009. And then 
Every year since, we've been trying to establish and to build and to maintain what's there. And what it feels like many times is piling concrete into the river just to see it get washed away. And many of you are in similar situations because this is Beijing. Whether you're in ministry work or you're in uh, some kind of business that you're trying to establish or whether just in your personal life it feels like as you build things and you establish things, just the nature of the place and living here, the nature of the community, it just washes away. You train resources, you, you gather resources and suddenly they get taken away. You, you train people and suddenly they're gone. And in this church, we turn over about a third of our congregation every year. In our BSF class, we were adding up the numbers. We presently have 59 on roll. On a good night, we have about 35 in attendance because many are traveling. But we have at least 106 people that have been inactivated since we started in the spring of 2009. Twice the number, almost, and there are more than that that I think we don't have in our records, that have already moved on and gone someplace else. Of all the original leadership that began the class, at the beginning of last year, I was the only person left. And that's the nature of the work that God does here in China. But there are times... There are times we stop and go, is it really accomplishing anything? We went through similar situations with our school. All the works that, that has been put into establishing this place, and then suddenly things turn, things are done improperly, and, and despite the best efforts of everyone involved, and God is in every bit of that, things collapse. And so you start to wonder, am I piling these things in the river? Will there ever be something established, or will it go away? And so I think the question, I think, even can come on your personal level. I think I've grown up a little bit in Christ. I think I've really got things figured out. Then in one moment, one angry moment with my wife or my children, one just bad day, it doesn't take even a bad day. It can be a bad minute. I feel like so much that it was there is just torn away and washed away. Was it really ever established at all? So the question I want to ask today is how can we be sure, like in this passage, we want to be building on the rock. How can we be sure we're building on the rock when the sand seems to be shifting under us all the time? How can we be sure we're building on the rock when the sand seems to shift under our feet all the time? Personally, corporately, ministry, in ministry, and in our, in our daily lives. And I can't promise you I have answers to all the questions I'm going to ask this morning. I'm just going to share my questions with you and let them bother you too. But maybe they'll, 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 they'll resonate with the questions you ask yourself. And so... Looking at this, this is kind of just a jumping off point of how do we look at what God's doing and our involvement in that work? How do we assess it? How do we really know? Are we, are we building? Are we, making, are we making progress? I think there are three questions we need to ask ourselves, and I do have those. Um, the first question, do we really know the God 
we are serving. If we're talking about, God, am I making progress here in my life with you and whatever I do? Because I believe all work, Protestant work ethic says all work is sacred to the Lord if it's done for him. In the work that I do, am I making progress? First, I need to know, do I really know the God I'm serving? Stephen asked the question, have you been watching movies? A couple of nights ago, we watched The Avengers again. Awesome movie. I love watching it. But you have two characters in there that are out of North, based on characters from Norse mythology. Loki, the trickster, and, and Thor, the god of thunder. And you get this impression as they're fighting each other, a sense of the same way that the Greeks, the Romans, the Norse, and many other cultures feel about gods. You have these two figures who are much more powerful and can't be harmed by normal means, just fighting it out, and all of humanity is caught in the middle. All of humankind is stuck, and we suffer as the gods fight. And in our mythology, in our, in our, our pictures of these different cultures, we've taken gods and said, basically, they're just like human beings, except more powerful and therefore more irresponsible. They have the same flaws we have. They have the same motivations we have. Everything comes from the same source as us. That's how we understand them. And we just have to watch out and stay out of their way. Or sometimes a man will do something or a woman will do something just enough, just good enough, or just be lucky. They will catch the notice in favor of the gods and then they'll be blessed. Now that's all fairy tales and mythology. But it seems to creep back into our human thinking, even as Christians. And so we need to ask this morning, what are the gods that we are serving? Is it really a picture of God as he exists? We create this fictionalized view of God. And again, it's because we take our own motives. And they're based in the passions and the feelings that God has. But, but, the, but in us, they're damaged. They're influenced by sin. They're completely colored by selfishness. And so this is what happens. We look at the stories of our history, and we look at the stories of our sin, and we've been studying the book of Genesis in Bible Study Fellowship this year. As we go back through the stories, we see these stories, and we see how God did absolutely everything for mankind. He provided everything we needed. Perfect garden, perfect temperatures, perfect work, perfect relationship, everything, and a relationship with him on a daily basis, walking with him in the cool of the day. The whole picture is perfection should be total satisfaction. So who messed it up? We did. We believed a lie rather than the one who had done everything for us, and we rebelled against him. And as a consequence, we had sin everything we see but what we've done is we've colored ourselves in a different role and we've gone back and we said well God has done this to us and God is that who do we blame when a natural disaster comes we even call it an act of God who do we scream at when someone's dying with a dread disease or when we're frustrated in our situation who do we blame who do we go to who do we ask why did you make it this way we rewrite God as the perpetrator instead of ourselves and we rewrite ourselves as the victims and even in our thinking in christian work and in christian life we can do the same thing we have the stories of god's work and we rewrite ourselves as the heroes who killed goliath who killed goliath 
Who did David say killed Goliath? God did. He said, I come to you by the power of God. And he trusted entirely in the power of God. Who do we tell the story about? We tell the story about David. Who said build an ark? God did. Who shut the door? God did. Who kept the ark safe? Because that thing was not a steerable, very good vessel. Who kept it safe in his hand through almost a year as he removed, as God removed all the boundaries that he'd set for the floods and the things that he had put in place to keep mankind safe? Who kept them safe? Who preserved us as a race? God did. But what happens is sometimes, when, even when we tell the stories, when we tell our stories, this is what I did. Here's how I was used by God to do this. That's correct. But as we remember it, we remember it, we think about these are my successes for the Lord instead of these are the Lord's successes and I had the privilege to share those things. It's a natural failing. And so even as we evaluate what we're doing for God, I think we need to look and see what kind of image of God am I using to measure what he's doing in my life. Um, Do you see a different image of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament? If you do, I'd encourage you to go back and reread it. Because there's, the more we've walked through this book of Genesis this year, I see time and again how God has provided everything for man. Man is messed up. And yet, even in man's sometimes unrepentant state, God continues to show mercy and grace. Cain is angry with his brother. God says, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to master you. You must resist it. Cain ignores it, kills his brother. God says, because you've, you've killed your brother, the ground is no longer going to provide crops for you. Did God curse him? No. The natural consequences of his sin produced that. But he says, this is too hard for me. I'm being cast out. I'm so unfair. And he whines. And so God puts a mark on him to protect him, despite the fact that Cain was never repentant. In fact, his line continued in rebellion against God and finally died out in the flood. God continues throughout the Old Testament. When he, even the flood All he did was remove the boundaries that kept men safe. And yet he was the one that preserved mankind. He continued. He chose Abram. He protected a people. He did everything he could until he brought us to this point, this Christmas, where he brought his son. And so if we have a view of a judgmental, angry God that's been painted for us by our misreadings or by our stories or by the fact that as you go over time, we continue to to sort of change the story to our own advantage, we need to go back. That's not the God that we serve. Some of us, and it may be because of, some of us prefer to think of an absent God. The deists and others made this a whole philosophy, but a God who's kind of off there, so he allows us to do our own thing, so he can't take any of the credit for all the good things we do, but somehow he still manages to take all the blame. Some of us, and I think this is where we're most susceptible to, have a performance God. The people who knew the most about Scripture had a performance God. The Pharisees, the scribes, the people who theologically were probably some of the best of all the people we read about in history had some of the best theology, yet they had this view of God that was based on performance. And I think that's the one that's easiest for us to adopt today. Am I working hard enough for God? Am I doing enough for God? Am I really pleasing Him? Let me tell you two truths that I've come to realize, but I have to relearn again every day. 
One is, is that I don't have to do anything to please God. He's already pleased with me. And the other is that failure, my failure, is a permanent state. I will never overcome it in this life. That's where the grace of God comes in. His grace works in our inability. I liked Jason's picture last week where he talked about basically all our righteousness is like filthy, filthy rags. And he said it literally means it's, it's excrement, it's crap, that which we bring to God. And that's right. All that we produce from ourselves is not. But the power of God working in us does the work of God. And so when I back up and look at this, I have to ask myself, when I start thinking I'm building and I'm just pouring concrete in the river and it's washing away, how do I view that in light of the God who I serve? How does God see this? And then I look back and see a God, and I think those who are closest to God sometimes need to be the ones who step back. Those Pharisees and scribes couldn't see Jesus for who he was. But in Matthew chapter uh, 25, there's a, um, um, I'm sorry, in Matthew, where is that? There was in Matthew chapter 8, there was a Roman centurion who came and he asked Jesus to heal a servant. And Jesus said, well, I'll come with you. He says, no, I know you're God. You can just speak and if you desire it, it'll be done. And God said, and Christ said, I have never seen such faith in Israel as this man right here. Sometimes we need to take a step back from all our doctrine and our belief and all those good things and just say, have I, have I followed a system for so long that I'm starting to lose sight of the God who's behind it? And so we, we come and we look again at a child who began in a manger. We look at John 1. 1 through 4. It says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. That's a pretty complete picture of how complete was Christ's authority in God. He was God, and all things were made through Him. But the next verses. Uh, verses 14 and 18 from that same chapter. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made Him known. This is a God who would leave all of that and come and live among us. And the crazy thing is, is that He began at a manger. He began at a manger miles and miles and years and years from the cross. And everything he did for 33 years was worthwhile. So what did he do? He lived as one of us. He endured everything. He had sickness. He had to go to the bathroom. He had problems at work. He had problems at school. He may have had people made fun of him. Some of the passages that talk about him said he has no stately form or majesty. We should look at him. Heard a Korean pastor the other day suggest that he may have looked older than he was because they mistook his age. So he's kind of ugly. He had nothing to cause people to be attracted to him by human values. He experienced everything we went through because it had a purpose. He is a God who understands us by experience. I teach school. 
I teach math, sort of. Hope. Hope they teaching and learning are two different things. But one of the things I do in class, most of the time, most assignments I give, I try to do the homework that I assign to my students. Because there's a difference between saying, yeah, I know what this is, and I know how much work this is, I think. And when I actually have to work through it, and see if, I'm, if I do it right, I do it a day ahead. Because then I realize, man, this is way too long. I've crossed out this one, crossed out this one, crossed out this one. And then I give them an assignment that's reasonable. That's teaching and directing by experience. In the same way, Jesus Christ has been through every single thing that we've experienced. And I believe he experienced it all in his death on the cross as he paid the penalty of sin. But he has lived, he has walked, he's been through the frustrations, just like us. There are a lot of passages that speak to that, and I'm, I'm not going to go through them all today just for the sake of time. But there's one passage in Hebrews Chapter 5, verse 7, says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. These are some other passages to look up. I'm not going to read them all this morning. With loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I have a God who gave up everything to fully understand me, to fully represent me, and to completely save and made perfect you and me. That's the kind of God I serve. That's the kind of understanding God I serve. And that's the kind of God I need to be seeing when I'm asking, Lord, what are you doing in this work? What are you doing? Can we doubt the love, concern, and understanding of a God who would do that? There's a second question we need to ask ourselves, those we're assessing, and that is, can we accurately assess the work that God desires? As we say, is anything being accomplished here? Well, what does God want to accomplish in the work? How much of this pouring concrete into the stream and letting it just wash on down is exactly what He has desired to do? First, are we even using the right measures and standards for our success? In uh, Micah 6.8, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? What do you see there of mission plans? Of deadlines? Of numbers? Amounts of money? Things that we need to accomplish? Are any of those measured in that passage? It's a relationship with Him. And in that relationship, as we go day by day, we form other relationships and we do the work of God in those relationships. God loves mankind. Mankind loves monuments. God loves us, but we love monuments. We like evidence. That's why we have all these things around the world. We have the pyramids. We have the Arc de Triomphe. We have all these different things that we love to build up and look at and see and say, here is what we've done. I mean, it started early. You go back to the plain of Shinar, and again, we studied the Tower of Babel in Genesis this time. And in Genesis chapter 11, God said, spread out, fill the earth. It's after the flood. You got a new start. Go fulfill your original purpose. What does man do? They say, let's stay together. 
Let's build a tower. Let's make a monument to ourselves. We could say, and then God scattered them and gave us languages. That's why we have this frustration in learning English, learning Chinese, learning local dialects, doing all these different things. Because we tended to clump up. But you know what? It happened in the church too. My dad has a, has a thing I've heard him say many times. In Acts 1.8, God says, you will, be, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the Holy Spirit comes. And they minister in Jerusalem. And they stay in Jerusalem. And they stay in Jerusalem. And there's an incubation period there, but they stay and they stay and they stay until suddenly Stephen is arrested and stoned to death. And in, in Acts 8.1, it says Saul began to destroy the church, to rip it apart. And what happened was they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And later, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And my dad's phrase was, if we're not an Acts 1.8 church, God will make us an Acts 8.1 church. If we don't scatter ourselves, he will scatter us. And you see that at work here in Beijing. You see people come in and they leave. This is not your traditional church environment. This is not a place where you come and you sit comfortably for a few years and hope that after some time someone will notice you and say, hey, how would you like to be on the finance committee? This is a place where you come in and from day one, if you want to do something, come do it. We need you. Come do it. We need you. We want to get the best out of you because you're going to be gone soon. And so, and, and, and that's, that's the only way it operates. It's the only way it works. And uh, in, in, in traditional church settings, we see we are piling everything up in one place, and God is trying to wash it out into all of humanity. We keep our best people. We're afraid to lose them. We recycle them from one committee to another, from one job to another. And what happens is you get generations that they grow up and they sort of run the church and then they get older and then they really run the church because everyone's afraid to make them mad because they're the ones who give the most and they're the ones who, who have the most influence in the community. And we have this model of church that is very different from what was laid out in Acts. So maybe what we have here is actually a lot closer to what God intends anyway. It's crazy. It's frustrating. It's hard and it's continually changing. You've got to continually remain dependent on the God who gives and the God who takes away. And the God who leads us to new places. Um, even, I thought it was appropriate, even with Humphrey's family leaving today, the, going on to new places. We have it all the time. God takes care of us in the new places we go to. And he uses us. Of those 106 people that were uh, on our inactive list, Stephen's one of those. Stephen was led out. Of, no, no, that's not. I told him I'd say only positive things. The reason he stepped out of leadership in Bible study fellowship is because God gave him new opportunities in coaching young people, coaching young professionals here in China. He fully involved him in something else. That's the whole purpose of that time of training is for him to go and do something else. He took our first children's supervisor, Tom Keel. And took him to Switzerland to the only men's Bible study fellowship class in Europe. And he's now serving as a leader there. So we export our, our, our leaders to other places. He's taken members to Spain. He's taken them back to America. He's taken them to, to different parts of the earth. He's moved them on. 
Sometimes he brings some of them back to us, and we're really glad for that too. And he brings others from other places. But that's what he's about. He is taking his people, and he wants to send them out. We get very afraid in the church in a traditional setting that if we train these young people up too well, God's going to turn them into missionaries and take them off someplace. Well, that's exactly right. We, have, we want our people to go. We want elders who will lead as servants and then step to the side to let next people come and the next people come and the next people come and fill those roles for the Lord. Because, you know, we don't necessarily get better as we get older. I'm not, I won't use any personal examples here, but look at David. Let's look at somebody Bible safe. Look at David. Do you think David's faith was stronger as a young man or as he grew older? I think his faith was still there, but his obedience went through some blips. As we are human, as we live in a world of sin, even under the grace of God, we make mistakes. And it's time for God to use others in the same way that he was using us. And it's, it's good for us to remember that power of God in me, power of God in you, power of God in the next generation. Now, in the long term, we understand that. We will not live to see all the work of God completed. And it was going long before we got here. But even in the short term, like in Beijing, you see it turn over and turn over and turn over. And um, just... Same thing happened to the Apostle Paul. He would just get started and he'd get moved on. But God would bring other people to do the work. This crazy struggle may be a more accurate picture of what God intends. And finally, in short of time, wrap up. Are we fully aware of our place in God's process? Are we fully aware as we're making an assessment? Is, is this really doing anything? Is something being accomplished here, Lord? Uh, Angie quoted to me a phrase that Tom Lauders used before. I couldn't find a source on it. It's source unknown, but just, uh, so I just say Tom, Tom, Tom Lauders' wisdom. Uh, God doesn't use people to get the work done. He uses work to get the people done. God doesn't use people to get the work done. Jason said last week when he was speaking, God doesn't need us to do his work, but God uses work to get the people done. We've got to remember our place in all this. Where it said with Jesus, even Jesus in his flesh, he said, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So many times I feel pushed to the supposed limit of my abilities and my endurance with these multiple jobs, multiple responsibilities, sitting on a Sunday night trying to prepare a a lecture for the men's BSF class the next evening and going, Lord, why is this so hard? But it's in those moments of struggle that I learn more about God and I learn more about how God sees me. I think we're made for the struggle. We're not made for the vacations. But enjoy the one you're taking now because we need, we need times to rest. But, uh, but we're made for the struggle. And even Israel's name, when Jacob was, had his name changed to Israel, means one who wrestles with God. We're made for the struggle. We need to reassess our evaluation of his timing, his resources, his purposes, and his outcomes in the light of the fact that God's focus in ministry is to change the minister. His focus in in whatever he has us doing is to change us. He wants to work in us. And so we tend to think in these very small spans of time, but he deliberately uses decades, like he did with his own son. Can you point to anything that Jesus was... A carpenter, but he may actually have been a master craftsman. He may have carved stone. He may have helped build some of the amphitheaters and things that were in that area. Can you point to anything he built? 
Can you point to any monument that had his hand upon it? I'm sure there were some. Can you point to any book he wrote directly? His work in relationships, and yet even his death, he did not provoke his death, but he was prepared for it from the time of his birth. And he accepted it when he came. He knew it was exactly the reason why he'd come. But his work was in the relationship of God to man. Emmanuel, God with us. And his work in us today is in his relationship of God to man, the Holy Spirit living through our lives, working in us, changing us. So whatever the work has, it will change us. Chris Wright, and I've quoted him in here before, but uh, Chris Wright says this, and I'll close with this. We ask, where does God fit into the story of my life? When the real question is, where does my little life fit into this great story of God's mission? We want to be driven by a purpose that has been tailored just right for our individual lives when we should be seeing the purpose of all life, including our own, wrapped up in the great mission of God for the whole of creation. I may be asking what kind of mission God has for me when I should be asking what kind of me God wants for his mission. Um, Invite the worship team to come on up here in just a minute as I close this thought. We had a perspective my wife Angie and I, when we were in college, we both actually formally went forward in different services that were about missions and said, you know, I'm willing to go overseas for missions. I'm willing to go where God wants me to go. And then God waited, we got married and God waited 20 years before he sent us to China. Does that mean that it was a 20-year delayed work? Everything God did before that moment, in those 20 years, and up to now, was still God's call, God's work. It was not where we were, but where, where, where we were with God and where God, what God was doing with us. But even then, it wasn't even that. It was, what's God doing? And we have the privilege of being part of his work. And I made the statement the other day to Angie that said, you know, we waited all those years so God finally gave the opportunity to be here. I don't want to leave here too easily. But I think that's wrong. I want to leave here when he's ready for me to be somewhere else. Because wherever he wants me to be is where he, is where he gives me the privilege of being involved in his work. And for all of us, however long we're here, how long we're, however long we're somewhere else... There's a phrase I always hang on to because I've moved a lot in my life and met a lot of different people. There's always one more hello than goodbye. And I'm not saying this as a preface to say, hey, we're getting out of here. I'm just saying, <laughs> whatever. I don't know if God has us here for, until we die. And I don't know when that is or if he has us back next year. That's in his planning. But as long as we're here and the frustrations and the struggle and all this pouring concrete into the river hoping that it's going to build up enough to accomplish something, knowing that really that's God sending that on downstream somewhere for some purpose that is His and is greater, is that in the end, I don't know what He's doing, but I trust that He does, and that's enough. Thanks.